0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 19, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Ascended Jesus, however you want to think about it, uh, the, the book of Acts. And if you haven't been with us or you've forgotten where we are at in the book of Acts, let me just sort of refresh your memory or bring you up to speed. Uh, In the wider picture, we have been hearing the story of how uh, a a small group of Jesus followers who had believed in the gospel and were in Jerusalem, how this small group spread and grew into Judea and then into Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That's the the big picture of the book of Acts. And right now within this story, we are currently uh, considering the journeys of the apostle Paul and his companions who with each successive missionary journey were proclaiming the gospel further and further away from Jerusalem into the wide world, eventually heading towards Rome. And here we're in Acts chapter 19. Last week we were in Acts chapter 18, obviously. And the account at the end of that chapter shows that after leaving the city of Corinth, Paul made a, a brief stop in Ephesus and was asked to stay there by some in the synagogue, but decided to to leave and to get back to Jerusalem. Antioch, I'll show you. I think I've got a map to remind us. You know, it wasn't working earlier, and it's not working now. So just remember the map. Um, anyway, so if you can remember what the map looked like, uh, Paul was in Ephesus, and then he headed down uh, to Judea to be in Jerusalem and in Antioch, where he arrived and probably reported to the churches there that had sent him out. Uh, Meanwhile, while Paul was probably making that journey and spending time in Judea, Paul had left his new friends, Priscilla and Aquila, who we met last week. Uh, They were in Ephesus and they met this guy named Apollos. We saw this at the end of chapter 18. And they found Apollos that he not only didn't fully understand, that he didn't fully understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that John the Baptist had pointed to in his ministry. So Priscilla and Aquila... Instructed and they discipled Apollos in all that Jesus had accomplished. And as he grew and showed promise as a, a minister of the gospel, they ended up sending him with their blessing to Corinth, where Paul had just been, and were told that he was a great blessing to the churches in Corinth. And at some point, in the midst of all of that, Paul left Athens again. This is for the third time. This is his third missionary journey. He leaves Athens. He heads north. He goes back through Galatia for the third time. You remember those same churches of Derby and Lystra and Iconium and and Antioch. And he's heading back through all of those churches. But his, his main goal is to make a beeline for Ephesus. He had wanted to go there before, but you remember the Spirit kept him from going to Ephesus. And then this last time he showed up and had to leave pretty quickly. But he said, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. And Acts 19 shows us that the Lord did will that he come back. And so he is there and spends a significant time ministering in the city of Ephesus. And so I want us to read what Luke, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, has preserved for us to know from his years of ministry there in Ephesus. He was there for at least two years, maybe close to three. And so a lot happened. But this is what we have. This is what the Spirit has preserved for us. I had planned to go all the way through verse 41, but found that 1 through 20 was enough. And so we'll just read verses 1 through 20, and we'll pick up the rest of Paul's uh, adventures in Ephesus next Sunday, Lord willing. So join me, uh, Acts 19, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva or or Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to be, and found it came to fifty thousand pieces of silver. So, The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There in in verse 20 is one of Luke's many summary statements that we've seen throughout um, the book of Acts about the gospel continuing to go forward and take root in the world, despite the controversy that came with it and the opposition to it. The further we travel with, with Paul, the more clearly we see the way that he and his partners in ministry turned the world upside down in every town that they arrived. And they turned the world upside down, not through physical force or financial capital or political power, but they did it with words, with a message of forgiveness and repentance and new life, with good news about Jesus which is the truth that turns the world upside down. Or maybe we should say right side up. The revolution that came with the gospel's arrival in places like Thessalonica or Corinth or here in Ephesus was so massive that it it caused wild reactions. People would chase down Paul from neighboring towns. They would stone him. We're going to see next week that a, a riot erupts in the streets of Ephesus because of what Paul and his companions are teaching. And the massive upheaval that came when the gospel showed up in the cities of the ancient world, was so great that Luke has as one of his main purposes in writing the book of Acts to show that the followers of Jesus were not political revolutionaries. He's trying to to encourage Theophilus and the readers that the Christians, the early Christian movement and the present Christian movement, that they weren't opposing some earthly government. They weren't trying to overthrow the rule of law. But that's not to say that they weren't proclaiming a new kingdom or that they weren't proclaiming a revolutionary message. In fact, here in our passage, we're told in, in, verse, um, in verse 8, that when Paul was in the synagogue, that's what he was, was teaching about. He was teaching the people about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus spent the 40 days after his resurrection, speaking to the disciples about. And despite what people thought, this kingdom had nothing to do with political power from Rome, Just as today it has nothing to do with seeking political power in Washington or anywhere else. That's not what the message of the gospel is about. Because the kingdom of God is after much bigger things than that. Much bigger things than political power. The kingdom of God could care less about political power. The kingdom of God is after our eternal souls. The throne that Jesus is looking to sit on is found in the hearts and the lives of people. He's not looking for taxes Jesus doesn't want lip service, and he doesn't want coerced allegiance. Those things are Caesar's, and Jesus says, give them to Him. I don't want them. Rather, what we as followers of Jesus, members of God's kingdom, must reckon with is the truth that the message of the kingdom says that Christ has come to be king over every part of our lives. That's what I think we find here as we see Paul entering Ephesus. It's this message, Christ has come to be king over. Over every part of our lives. This is what the people of Ephesus uh, of the people in the city of Ephesus heard when Paul proclaimed the gospel. They heard the message of the kingdom. The message that God in Christ is king and that he wants to be king over us. For some of them, and for some of us, that's scary. That's a scary thought because we don't want a king. And in fact, we think we're ruling our lives just fine. Thank you very much. We're doing pretty well as king of our own hearts and we don't need Jesus. But when we get to know who King Jesus is and what his rule will mean in our lives, then we begin to see with eyes of faith that it's only in his kingdom that we will find joy and forgiveness and peace. The things that our hearts are searching for. It's only when Christ is ruling over us that we will be satisfied. And so I want us to simply walk through these early days in Ephesus and see how the, the message of the kingdom, the message that Christ has come to be king over every part of our lives, how that confronted different individuals and groups of people. I wish I had a really clear outline for you, but I felt like I would take away from the story in trying to do that. So I just want you to hear the story of Paul going through Ephesus and just think about it through this theme of Christ has come to be king over every part of our lives. So the first people that Paul met when he walked into Ephesus seems to be this group of 12 men who were disciples, it says. But we find out that they were disciples of John the Baptist. Paul has a a conversation with them to see if they bore the marks of true conversion, the marks of people living with Jesus as king. And those marks that he's highlighting of a true follower of Jesus are repentance, Faith, baptism, and the indwelling of the Spirit—that's what he's looking for. He's assessing where these guys are at in their their faith, and he's looking for he's looking for repentance, faith in Jesus. Have you been baptized, and is the Spirit dwelling within you? I'm not saying that those are, the, especially uh, baptism, that that's necessary for salvation, but that is a sign of someone who has. Come to faith and we'll see that. And there's a conversation here. I don't know if you noticed that, but basically verses two through, um, two through four are a conversation and it sort of went something like this. Paul says to these guys, when you believe, did you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit? And these disciples of John say, well, we haven't even heard that there is a spirit, so I guess not. Uh, and Paul then says, but you say that you were baptized, so what were you baptized into? And they say, well, we were baptized into, with John's baptism. And Paul says, oh, I see. So John's baptism, he says, was for repentance of sin, which is needed. But, but John's baptism was meant to point you towards faith in the one that John spoke of and pointed to, in Jesus, the Messiah. Now here's the beauty of this scene. After this conversation, we're told that these men, these disciples of John hear this and they believe. They just accept it. They don't hold on to their traditions. They don't push against Paul's teaching. They simply believe. If you've been with us, the whole scene reminds me of when Paul arrived in Philippi and the Lord just opens up Lydia's heart to receive the word of the Lord. So similar. She just receives the gospel and the same with these guys. They were ready and they were prepared to hear and to receive the gospel. The kids have been studying the parable of the sower and the seeds, and like the seeds uh, the, like the in the parable of the seeds, these twelve guys, these twelve disciples of John, they are good soil. They're, they're soil that's been that's been tilled up. So when the seed of the word comes, they they receive it and they bear fruit immediately. They had repented of their sins and now they they've believed in Jesus. And having believed, they were baptized. And then as Peter and John had done in Samaria, if you remember that back in chapter 8, Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Spirit. Now, let me address something here. Some take this, especially that last part, as evidence that there's sort of a second blessing that comes to those who have put their faith in Jesus, that they must believe in Jesus at one point in time, and then the, the Spirit will only indwell them at a later point. Namely, after someone has laid their hands on them, and then it's taught that the indwelling of the Spirit must be evidenced by speaking in tongues. Let me be completely honest. I don't want to waste our time talking about that. (laughs) Because I think it gets away from the core teaching of this passage. I think it's just a distraction. And so if that's a teaching that you've come across, it's something you want to talk about, I'd be happy to to hash that out with you at some point later on. But suffice it to say at this point, I think this is a clear example in the book of Acts where Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive, meaning that the Spirit is telling us what happened in that moment. He's not telling us what we should do here and now. Even within this context, I would say Paul is making it clear that to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the marks of being a Christian And the uniqueness of this transition from these guys following John's baptism from this Old Testament understanding of things into faith in Jesus, it means that this sort of echo of Pentecost is necessary, that Paul needs to to do this special thing where he lays hands on them and then they receive the Holy Spirit. So to believe in Jesus, to repent and have faith, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to believe in Jesus is also to be baptized in his name. We, we've said this before, but the thought in the New Testament of an unbaptized Christian was totally foreign. It made no sense to anyone. That'd be like, I try to think of an example. It'd be like two people getting married and then not kissing at the end of the ceremony. If you, can you imagine? You're at a wedding. Ceremonies going on, you get to the very end, and the pastor says to the new husband, You may kiss your bride. And they look at each other and they say, Eh, not really interested. No thanks. We'd all be a little shocked, right? And say, What's going on here? And and that is in a sense what it would be like in the New Testament time for someone to be a Christian and then not be baptized. Why would you not be baptized? Those who had truly repented and believed and been filled with the Holy Spirit took up the sign of baptism as an evidence To all that they were a follower of Jesus, this was the logical and the obedient thing to do, and so the disciples of John immediately announced to all that they were followers of Jesus, uh, of this one that John had pointed to, and that they were Christians who had believed in Jesus, that they had um, that Jesus had bought them through forgiveness, uh, through His death and resurrection, and that He they were now enthroning Him as Lord and King in their lives. As I thought about these guys, I thought, you know, you might be here today and you might be you might be like these 12 guys. You might be really, extremely close to the kingdom of God. So close, but you've not yet crossed the line of faith. You know a lot, but you don't know the power of the indwelling spirit that comes through repentance and faith in Christ and you're resting in some sort of a a partial knowledge. You see and you hear all of the signs that are pointing to Jesus. You're like the God-fearers all throughout the book of Acts. But you have yet to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and be filled with the Spirit and be baptized, announcing the reality of those things. And I just wonder as you look at these guys and hear this message of the gospel that maybe today the seed of the gospel is ready to bear that fruit. Maybe today you're ready to repent and to believe and to bow your knee before King Jesus and to be baptized in His name and to walk in His ways through the power of the indwelling Spirit. Don't be so close, but miss it. Well, from these disciples, John Uh, these disciples of John who then became disciples of Jesus and became members of the church in Ephesus. We move on to verses 8 through 10, and we find Paul in a similar situation to what he was in in Corinth. In fact, the the whole scene in Ephesus is parallel to Corinth. If you want to compare chapters 18 and 19, you'll find a lot of parallels. Uh, But Paul goes into the synagogue, seeks to reason with the Jews. But when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, and they spoke publicly against the way, he took his disciples with him. He withdrew from them, and from the synagogue he found some space in the hall of a school founded by a man named Tyrannus. I had not thought of it until I read it out loud. But I thought, sounds like Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's, but it is the root of tyrant. Some people thought maybe he was this guy was a rough teacher, and someone gave him that name, Tyrannus. He's the founder of that school. Um, but anyways. Paul goes there and he finds some space and and there he reasons daily with anyone who would come and listen and with those who had believed. And did you see how long he did it for? Two years. Consider that time frame for a moment. Two years. For two years, Paul reasoned daily with the people. This wasn't a a one-day crusade in the city of Ephesus. It wasn't a single conversation. God can use efforts like that. However, the reality is that for most people to understand and submit to the rule and the reign of Jesus, it's going to take years of reasoning, of conversations. We live in the age of the microwave, and we expect that when we share the gospel with someone, or we hold a yearly evangelistic event, or we commit to a six-week study of the Scriptures with an unbeliever, then that person that we're sharing the good news with, they are obviously going to believe. The first time we share the Gospel, of course they're going to believe. And when they don't, we get discouraged. Two years, the Apostle Paul had to reason with people. The Spirit does whatever He wants, surely. But we should also realize that the soil of the human heart is not often as fertile and prepared as the hearts of the brothers in verses 1 through 7. And so we should not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged at the lack of results in the short term or even over a long period of time. I think Paul's model encourages us to keep reasoning with people, keep talking with people, keep reasoning with your co-workers, with your family members, with your children, with your neighbors. Don't lose heart. Remember what the Lord says to Paul in the previous chapter? Don't lose heart. I'm with you. And I have a lot of people in this city. Don't lose heart. Stick with it. Two years was a long time. But it was also a short amount of time for God to do as much as he did because we're told that as as Paul was, was teaching, his efforts resulted in that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, don't think like Asia as we think about Asia now. It it wasn't that. But that whole region that he was in, everyone heard the word of the Lord. Some people probably heard it from Paul's mouth. I bet people were coming to hear who's this guy that's teaching. Let's hear what he has to say. Others heard it probably from fellow workers like Aquila and Priscilla. Others maybe heard it secondhand or thirdhand or fourthhand. And still others heard it because of the miracles that God chose to do through Paul. These are the miracles that are mentioned in verse 11. And Luke seems to emphasize how unique and astounding these things were. He calls them extraordinary miracles. Simply put, you see what happens? It's something touches Paul's skin and then it's sent abroad. I imagine maybe Priscilla or Aquila, or or, um, maybe Timothy or someone went out. They take this stuff with them. And when it's given to people, when they touch it, they're healed from their disease. Or if they're possessed with a demon, the demon leaves. This is like a work apron. Uh, One guy was reading, said it was probably like a sweat rag that he had. Maybe, you know, something he wrapped around his head. And then they take it and it heals people. Let's be totally honest. It's hard to believe that, isn't it? Uh, We don't see that often. So let's be honest that it's a little bit difficult for us to swallow. It's hard for us to imagine. But we should also admit that while we have a greater knowledge about some things in our day and age, about medical advances or scientific thought, one thing that we might not understand as well as people in that day and time did are the spiritual forces at work in this world. We're a little numb to that. And so maybe we have something to learn about God's power and God's ways from those who came before us. Let's not be, um, so have, as I think C.S. Lewis called it, chronological snobbery where we think that because we live in this day and age and have everything figured out, that everyone before us didn't know what was going on. Let's think that maybe they had a deeper insight into what was happening. But God used this. God used these miracles to draw people to faith in Christ. Let me just say that one thing we're not supposed to learn from this is that we should take up this practice ourselves. People who sell supposedly blessed handkerchiefs and holy water on their television programs to unsuspecting widows and to people in desperate situations are con artists and they are shysters and they bring reproach on the gospel and they spread a false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity and it spreads through the world especially in places where there is poverty and disease and I can only imagine what kind of condemnation Paul would bring on people who were, who do this kind of thing. Can you imagine what Paul would think of someone who, take the, who took this verse and said, maybe I can make a little money. Maybe I can get a little bit of a following doing what Paul did, telling people that these handkerchiefs can heal them. I don't even want to imagine the wrath of God that's reserved for people who abuse and take advantage of others in the name of the gospel and in the name of God. So let's be careful we never do that. And yet these modern day peddlers of prosperity are part of a long line of similar degenerates, at least back to the sons of Siva that are mentioned here. These seven guys are described as itinerant Jewish exorcists. You remember in school taking uh, career assessments, you take a test. And it would tell you the vocation that you need to have and you'd get it back. I was told I was supposed to be a park ranger, I think, or something like that. I don't remember. Uh, did anyone get itinerant Jewish exorcist? No, nobody got that one. That seems to be some sort of a career, right? These guys traveled around and probably for a fee, they, they cast out demons. And when they heard about Paul and his power, they thought, hey, let's add the name of Jesus to our standard set of incantations and words that we use to cast out demons. And so they take up the name of Jesus without submitting to his rule in their lives. They add Christ to their current beliefs. They rely on a secondhand knowledge of Jesus rather than trying to understand why the name of Jesus is so powerful. They try to use the name of Jesus in their quest for personal advancement. And the result was that when they try to use the name of Jesus, they're chased from the house, naked and wounded and overpowered, completely humiliated. There's a valuable lesson here. Jesus is not a talisman. He is not a mantra. He's not some sort of charm that you slip on your religious bracelet. He's not one more symbol on the coexist bumper sticker that's between the crescent moon and the yin and the yang. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the universe. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who can save our eternal souls from eternal damnation. And Jesus will not be used and abused by people who refuse to acknowledge him as such. There are people who want to attach themselves to certain parts of Jesus or to, to the power of the gospel. They want, to, they want to use it, but they don't want to let the gospel turn their lives upside down. Anyone who does that, the result of those efforts will always be disastrous and damning in the end because Jesus says to the rich young ruler and to anyone who takes up his name, I want everything you've got. Friends, second-hand knowledge of Jesus will not do. These guys thought that by claiming association with Paul, that that would be sufficient. But they were wrong. And if we think that we can know the grace and forgiveness of God and the power of the Spirit because of someone else's faith, we're wrong. i would say that that children your your mom and dad's trust in jesus will not save you even if they wanted to kids can go to a restaurant and they can eat free because their parents pay for a meal. That's awesome. I love that. Kids, you love maybe going to a restaurant with your parents and they buy a meal and you get to eat whatever you want. That's great at a restaurant. But that's not how Christianity works. Each one of us, individually, by God's grace, must repent and believe. If you're here because you think that my faith as a pastor will somehow save you, you're wrong. If you think the faith of your spouse will save you, you are wrong. If you think the faith of a friend will save you, you're wrong. If you think, if if you are a follower of Jesus and you think that someone's closer walk with Christ, someone that you know, that their closer walk with Jesus will mean power in your life, you're wrong and you will find yourself overpowered and embarrassed when trials and difficulty come. The spirit of the sons of Siva is alive and well in our hearts. It fits within our culture. We want the benefits and the blessings without effort and obedience. We have to be aware of that. You can't take up the name of Jesus and think you can get whatever you want from Him without submitting to Him, without confessing Him as Lord and Christ. This is funny. We can laugh at these guys. But we need to be careful that we're not laughing at ourselves, that we're not doing the exact same thing that they're doing. What's amazing is that God uses even the failure of these ex- of these exorcists to extol the name of Jesus. You think that this would bring reproach on the name of Christ, but what does it say? It says that in verse 17 fear fell upon everyone and the name of the Lord was extolled. His name and his fame spread through Ephesus and all Asia even more. His his kingdom started to reign even more in the lives of men and women. And that meant that people's lives were completely changed the believers recognized in that moment, Jesus wants all of me. I can't take up the name of Jesus lightly in my life. I can't just add him on. And so people started doing radical things. People who had practiced magic, and that seems to be a large practice within the city of Ephesus. People who had practiced magic, they brought all of their books and they burned them. Luke notes that this was a significant thing, not only because... They were allowing Christ to reign over their entire lives, every part of it, but also because they didn't seek any financial financial advantage from these books. They were worth a lot of money, and they didn't take them to half-price books and try to make a little cash by selling them back. They said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this, and I don't want anyone else to have anything to do with this. They saw the evil of these things. They swallowed the cost of lo- losing them, and then they set them ablaze in the middle of this town as a testimony that they were fully, wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. They were like the man in the parable that Jesus told who found a treasure hidden in a field. And what did he do? He sold a few things, just enough things. He sold everything so that he could buy the field and get the treasure that is Jesus. That's what it looks like when Jesus takes a hold of our lives. We will sacrifice everything for him. We will count the cost of making him king and realize that it's worth the sacrifice of anything and everything that we hold dear. We consider his reign and we realize that in Christ and Christ alone, we will find the treasure and the riches that we are seeking for in our hearts and in our lives. And is it a sacrifice? Yes and no. David Livingston, I've shared this before, who gave his life to serve Christ in the exploration of Africa for the sake of access for the gospel, said this to some students at Cambridge regarding how he had to leave the benefits of England. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause, and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he said, I never made a sacrifice. Will it cost us something to let Jesus rule and reign over every part of us? Yes and no. Because what we gain from giving Christ all that we are far exceeds whatever trinkets we have to give up. Christ has come to be king over every part of our lives. Christ has come to be king over every part of your life. When I say that, what's the part? What are the parts that come to your mind, by God's Spirit, what arises in your heart? What are the things that you feel He is not reigning over? The, the places that you feel like He doesn't have power to reign in you. The sin that you think He can't defeat, or that you don't want Him to defeat the idol that's in your heart that you can't imagine casting down or that you don't really want to live without? Who's the rival king that you think Jesus can't dethrone? What's the realm of your heart that you're fearful of handing over to Jesus to let him rule over? What's the area where 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 if he was to take control, you feel like life might get a little bit harder, a little bit more uncertain. You don't want to give it up. As we think about these sort of unyielded parts of us, I think we should also remember that there is a sense in which Christ is king over every part of the Christian. When we bow our knee in repentance before King Jesus and we trust in the work that he has done through his death and resurrection, we are embracing him as the Savior of our souls and we are enthroning him as the Lord of our lives. Jesus does not give you the option of accepting him as Savior, but not not allowing him to reign over you as Lord. That's not an option. But there are some places, as I think about the Old Testament, I would think about calling them high places, that Israel just never seemed to tear down. Strongholds, places that just don't fall easily and that are always threatening to rebel again. The sinfulness that remains in us, our flesh, as Paul calls us, fights against Christ's full reign. And it fights hardest in certain parts of our hearts and our lives. And it's different for all of us. But Christ has come to be king over every part of your life. As I thought about this, I kept thinking about it. And this is not sophisticated, but the application that came to my mind was this. Let's stop messing around. If, if Christ is king, let's let him be king. Let's stop seeking the power of Jesus in our lives, but then not letting him have full control of our lives. That doesn't work. Let's stop thinking that he's something that we can use for our own personal advantage or well-being and then not honor him as Lord. Let's live as children of the King. Let's live as, as people who Christ is reigning over every part of us. It sounds really hard, but it's the place of true joy. For some folks here, it meant public confession. It could mean that for us. It could mean private confession. It could mean getting rid of something that fights for your allegiance. They burned their books. I told Andrea, I said, I'm getting distracted by my phone. I feel it. <laughs> so I found an app lock. <laughs> I can't get on the internet on my phone anymore, and it's a beautiful thing. Because it was it had a hold of my heart in in a in a unique way. I was a Sucking me in. Now that could be legalism. I think it's just wisdom. (laughs) I think it's burning my magic books. Maybe I should have just burnt the whole phone, huh? I don't know. But this could mean many things, couldn't it? It could mean a thousand things. What it doesn't mean is that doing those things will save you. Can we be real, real clear about that? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works of the law. Burn all your magic books. It won't save you. What this means though is that if we are true followers of Jesus and we've come to him through repentance and faith, when we start letting him into every part of our lives, it means that we're seeking the joy of Christ's kingdom. That we're selling all these lesser lesser things for the treasure of Christ. That we're believing that it's in Christ that we're going to find what our hearts are looking for. And I think there's practical things that we need to do. But I also think that the way we allow Jesus to rule and reign over every part of our lives is by not trying to rule and reign over our our rogue desires and passions. It's rather by allowing Jesus to reign, to submit to the Spirit's control, to let the Spirit do His work, to recognize the strength that we have through the Spirit who indwells us, and then invite Him to take control of us for the glory of God. By God's grace, through His Spirit, we can allow Christ to fully reign in our hearts and lives. If I wrestle with my kids on the living room floor and one of them pins me, is it because I don't have the strength to pin them? No, it's because I gave up. I think that's why Christ doesn't fully reign in us sometimes. It's not because we don't have the strength within us through the Spirit. It's because we give up. Paul says later on, "It's we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. We give up too easily. So let me encourage you, don't, don't give up too easily. Let's stop messing around. Let's let Christ reign fully in our hearts and lives. Whatever you're looking for, that's where you're going to find it. And it's going to be a fight. It's not a sacrifice, but it is a sacrifice. And it is a fight. And we're going to fight until Christ returns. And when he does, then he will be king. And his kingdom will be fully over all things, including us. But until then, let's live in this truth and remember that Christ has come to be king over every part of our lives. And what a wonderful thing that he is a king of grace and peace and mercy and love. And his reign brings complete joy and satisfaction to our hearts.